My name is Brian. I'm going to read from Hebrews 11, um, verse 8 through 22. Uh, you can follow along in your journal uh, or on the Bible app or on the screen up here. Uh, just have faith that it will be there when I start reading. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received the power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, by the way, I think that's a big pick-me-up, like hero of the faith, as good as dead when God found him. But anyway, um, and him as good as death were born descendants, and as many as the stars of heaven, and as many as the innumerable, innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land which they had gone out, they would have had the opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he... <clears throat> who had received the promise was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. Thanks, Brian. Good morning, everyone. We're continuing in a, a series called Farsighted, and uh, this morning the message is entitled uh, Responsive. Responsive. So uh, we're going to talk about how we can be responsive while being uh, farsighted, and uh, I, I've, I'm a fairly handy person, I think. Maybe I'm overstating that, but there's a lot of things that I've done um, in and through my home. We, we lived in a home for a little over 12 years in the, the Syracuse area, the greater Syracuse area, and uh, when I was there, we redid rooms, we finished floors, we uh, installed a bathroom and redid our entire kitchen. Me and my wife, that was great. It really brought us together <laughs> in some unique ways. And uh, so, so I've done a lot of construction type things in my home. And um, there was one time in particular uh, where I was trying to fix a drain upstairs in the upstairs bathroom. And uh, we lived in a ranch, but so I mean upstairs from the basement. And I had tried to clean out this drain. I thought I was uh, really tricky, and um, I accessed the drain from the office through the back wall. And so I cut out part of the wall, cut this pipe, and was kind of fishing it out, thinking I'm certainly going to clean this thoroughly way better than it's ever been cleaned before. And as I was kind of snaking a, a snake down there, 
I hit something solid, and uh, I thought, wow, that is so weird, and there was water everywhere, and it's solid, and so I call my dad, which I did often, and I said, Dad, I don't understand what the problem is. I'm, I'm snaking this, and I'm hitting something solid. He goes, well, are you hitting kind of the T in the drain? If you can imagine kind of a T set on its side, are, are you hitting the drain? And, uh, and he's like, uh, I was like, no, it's, it's definitely softer than that. And he goes, well, kind of turn it a little bit. So I turned it a couple times. He goes, now, now pull it out. So I pulled it out, and there was like gunk all over it. And he goes, oh, yeah, that's what I'm afraid of. He goes, it's, it's plugged solid. I was like, it's plugged solid? And so I just look around like, my children are disgusting. Now, I, I realized that we've, uh, you know, this home, although we had lived there for about 10 years, uh, the home existed, it was built in 55. And so it's got almost 50 years of nast uh, just going through this drain. This is a lovely picture, you know, in your mind. It's going to get better. Don't worry. Uh, and so I, I call, uh, so I'm on the phone with my dad, and he's like, yeah, just, uh, it, it's clogged solid. And I was like, so what do I do now? He goes, well, you have a couple options. You can call a plumber, or uh, I can come over, and we can cut it out, and we, we can replace it. And I was like, I like the free option. Like, let's do that. And so he goes, okay. So he says, close up the pipe and everything, and I'll, I'll be over. So close up the pipe, and um, I'm downstairs now in the basement, and I can see where this drain pipe ties into the main drain to our home, and it's a cast iron pipe, and so I'm looking up at it, and I'm thinking, wow, this is going to be weird. I wonder how we're going to do this, and uh, my dad's like, oh, so this is what we're going to do. You're going to cut through that pipe, and uh, I was like, okay, it doesn't seem too bad. It was like about two inches around on the outside, and so I have a sawzall. It's a metal cutting bit in there. And I was like, so I just, I just cut it through. He goes, yeah, but pay attention to what I'm going to tell you. It's like, okay, because I haven't been listening so far. It always cracks me up when my dad's like, pay attention. He also has this thing where when he, whenever he gives me money, he's like, don't lose it. Why? And then I caught myself giving money to my kids the other day, like, hey, don't lose it. Like, why do I say that? I don't know. Is it because my dad says there's like just this idea that people are like, here's money. Oh, I lost it. Anyway, so he's like, pay attention. I was like, okay, just you and me in the basement. I'm here. And he's like, all right, when you cut through this pipe, keep going. It's like, got it. That's some real words of wisdom there. So cut it all the way through, Dad? He's like, yeah, but no, now pay attention to me because what's going to happen is you're going to cut through this. It's going to start getting messy. It's going to start spraying some water, and your instinct is going to be to stop. But if you stop, it's going to get way more messy. I was like, okay, I got it. He's like, so just keep cutting. I was like, all right. He's like, no matter what, as fast as you can, cut through that pipe once you start. Got it, Dad. Okay, so I'm in this little kind of area, this, it's like this little spot that's not very wide. I couldn't stand with my shoulders uh, parallel, so I'm kind of like this, and I have my sawzall fully extended, and it's up over my head, and I start cutting through this pipe, and as I'm cutting and cutting and cutting, it cuts through the outside of this pipe, and then kind of the moment happens where it breaks through into the opening in the pipe, and water starts to spray out, and it's brown and distar- very disturbing. It smells a little bit of what I imagine the inside of a cow's anus smells like. And so as I, I don't know, why did you say what like that? It was super loud. My wife's like, what? She's like horrified. I'm just telling you, in order to be in the moment, that's what I was experiencing. Because I'm trying to justify what happens next. Because you need to realize that it's up over my head. And I'm cutting, and so the sprayage is coming down on me, raining down like a little gift from 50 years of poo. And so it's, it's, a, it's a sink drain, so it's not poo, but it seems like poo. And so as I'm cutting through, 
it sprays everywhere and maybe a little bit got in my mouth and maybe I kissed my wife afterwards. You're welcome. Um, so there, now we're even. But so no, it sprays a little bit. And so lo and behold, I think that wasn't nearly as bad as my dad expressed. And so I stop. And my dad goes, son, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm cutting a pipe. How are you? And he's like, why did you stop? And I was like, well, because I, I cut it and it like it sprayed out. It got messy. He's like, no, what did I say to you? Keep cutting. I was like, all the way through. Yeah, wow. I definitely did not listen just then. I did not pay attention at all. He's like, I told you it was going to get messy. You need to cut all the way through. He goes, now it's going to be really messy. I was like, I don't think it can get messier than this. He's like, oh, yeah? He's like, you watch. Because you slowed down, all that stuff settled because the water came out, and when you start cutting through that, it's going to be a real mess. And then he kind of backs up as he says it. And so I'm like, how bad could this be? So he's like, look at me. Don't stop cutting. I was like, all right. He's like, it's going to get messy. Don't stop. Or it will get worse because it's going to start shaking. It's going to get everywhere. I was like, all right. He's like, so what are you going to do? Like, I'm going to cut it all the way through. He's like, you sure? I was like, yeah, Captain, I got it. So I get in there and I start cutting. And sure enough, now I'm like halfway through this pipe. It's up over my head and stuff is just gushing out 50 years of nast. And now the fact that I have let the air out has allowed all of everything to start settling, and it's called grease. When, when spit and rotting hair and everything that goes into a sink drain, you're welcome, it's still, it doesn't compare to what I experienced. And so it's all in there. It's called grease because it's like black. And so it just starts, it's gushing out. It's over my head. It's raining down on me. He goes, keep going full speed. I'm like, Captain, I'm giving it all she's got. But I didn't say it in Scottish. I just did that for you guys. You're welcome. And so as I'm spraying it down, it's spraying onto me. It's in my face. It's in my mouth. It's in my ears. And I'm just cutting through this. And I was like, really just keep cutting. And so I'm pushing down on it as if that'll make it go faster. You know, have you ever had that moment where you're trying to cut something with a sawzall? You're just pushing it like as if that'll make it go faster. And so I finally cut through this pipe. And he looks at me and I turn around and I am just covered. I smelled so, so bad. And I turn around and look at him and he's like, so you're going to listen to me next time? I'm like, I am going to kill you right now. And he's like, I told you, pretty messy, right? I was like, yeah, pretty messy. So the question I ask this morning is why does obedience become more difficult when things start to go wrong? Why does obedience become more difficult when things start to go wrong? I think the answer is fairly easy, but somewhat embarrassing, if I'm honest. Obedience is easy when it seems to be working for our benefit. That's the truth, like it or not. When things make sense to us, it's easy to obey. But when it starts to to get a little messy, a little bit difficult, then we're not so sure. We're not so sure that the person giving us the advice thought things through. It sounds kind of self-centered, but the reality is that we're very self-focused as human beings. Like it or not, if it benefits us, we'll obey. But once the journey becomes difficult or messy, we begin questioning whatever or whoever is giving the direction. Are you sure? Does that make sense? Because I'm getting messy here. Are you sure I'm supposed to keep cutting? Yeah, or it'll get worse. My dad, obviously, he doesn't have like 
the worst in store for me. He's not the type of dad that would be like, ha ha, got you. <laughs> like, he's giving me advice, and yet once it got messy, I stopped. Because I thought, surely, that's as bad as it gets. We'll question anything. We even question technology. <laughs> this isn't working. It's not working. There's no way these instructions are right. Like, sure, because an entire corporation is conspiring against you by giving you improper instructions. <laughs> like, yeah, it's not working for me. Like I said a moment ago, this is a human thing, not a uniquely Christian thing. Whether we're at school, at work, relationships, you name it, we listen to the teacher. We listen to the coach. We listen to the boss, the parent, the spouse, as long as what they are saying is benefiting us. Once it gets messy, once it's different than what we signed up for, once it's a little bit harder, then we start questioning things. We're not sure that we should maybe have that blind obedience that we started with. The problem is this idea, our humanity, it runs directly against faith. Faith means trusting and obeying in the midst of the difficult and the messy. As things are getting messy, we lean in and obey. Not because we understand the moment, but because we understand beyond the moment. How is that possible? How is it possible to obey in the difficult and the messy when it literally goes against our humanity? Do we blindly risk trusting things that seem not to help in our most painful moments? That would be foolish, right? You'd have to be an idiot to trust in something or someone that seemed to fail you in the most critical, darkest moments of your life. And unfortunately, that's a lot of people's misperception of Christianity. Just blindly have faith in the midst of the pain. It may be why chapter 11 of Hebrews is, is difficult to wrap our minds around at certain points. Verse 8 says, By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. Now, maybe at face value, this kind of seems to make sense. Abraham obeyed because he was going to get an inheritance. So something's in it for him, right? That's the type of obedience that really resonates with us. <laughs> I get it, right? It's usually how we have to be manipulated in certain environments where there's a, a reward over our head. So we're like, okay, I'll obey because I'm going to get that bonus or I'm going to get that candy or I'm going to get that benefit. And so there's just something in it for me, and so therefore, I'll obey. But get this. You have to remember that the, the author of Hebrews is also teaching us how to read the Old Testament. And so we have to read or know the Old Testament to, to realize that the promise of the inheritance was not an incentive to obedience. It was a reward of his obedience. If you look at the story of Abraham, God told him to go to, to a country he did not know. Go. You don't know where you're going, but go. And Abraham took all that he had and he went. And it was in the midst of his obedience that God rewarded him and said, I'm going to make you the father of nations. Look at the stars in the sky. The way that you can't number them is the way you won't be able to number the amount of children that you'll have. 
an incredible concept. But it was not a reward-based decision. It was obedience. Abraham didn't know anything that was in it for him when he obeyed. He obeyed because God spoke. That's it. Now, this can tell you one of two things. And one of them is really dangerous. The one that's really dangerous is that it can tell you that Abraham is somehow superhuman. That he has a capacity to have faith that you could never comprehend or understand. And that's a super dangerous one because it elevates Abraham to a level of deity. Which if you've been with us on the journey of the other series that we've been through, series is, the other series, Sirai, anyway, <laughs> the other series we've been through, then you realize that the author of Hebrews has already put a lot of effort into ensuring that you realize Abraham was a human being. That Jesus is actually greater than Abraham. And so the first one is heresaical. So then we're left really with the only other option, and that's that we have the capacity as humans to respond when nothing's in it for us. It's possible. Abraham was human. He, in faith, went out because God told him to. And that it's within our capacity as human beings to simply obey. Listen, if we wanted to, we can move and go simply because God speaks. We like the first option because if we can elevate Abraham, then we can say, oh my gosh, I could never be as spiritual as him. I could never be as, as amazing as these people or that person. But really, if we're all humans, it means that we have the capacity to respond and obey if we wanted to. So then the question is, do you want to? Do you want to obey? Or do you think you know better? In the, in the midst of cutting through the pipe, you think, oh, that's, that's probably as bad as it gets. That's what he meant. I'll stop here. That's not obedience. Like, literally, he was completely confused. He's like, Claude, I told you, and you just stopped. Well, I thought, like, when was the last time you cut through a drain pipe? <laughs> Never. Okay, well, I'm here because I know a thing or two. Cut through it. We do the same thing with our lives. But the alternative is responsive faith. We can have responsive faith. The verse may seem kind of complex now that we've looked into it a little bit, but it's actually rather straightforward and really significant. Don't miss the context here. Abraham left his home country of Haran, or Haran, depending on how you pronounce that or prefer to, in Mesopotamia. So this is culturally huge. And if you don't know the, the history of Mesopotamia or the fact that the Mesopotamian world was quite dangerous then you need to realize that the end of that verse is really, really significant. It, it says, not knowing where he was going. Not knowing where he was going. It actually has a dual meaning here. If you consider it in context, it has a dual meaning. He had no idea where God was sending him. That's the first obvious one. He was just going, not knowing where he was going. But he literally didn't know the land. The land was unknown to him. You see, knowing the land in that culture meant physical safety. 
the world that he lived in was actually very dangerous. They functioned in clans and in families. And so to be in the proximity of your family and your clan and your known world was to ensure safety and numbers, if nothing else. If something went wrong for you, the person next to you was related to you and they could provide in the midst of this dark season. So to literally pack up everything, to pack up the known, to pack up the safety and the security, and to say, I'm leaving. Why? What's wrong? Nothing. God spoke. I'm going to go. Where? To a land he'll show me. What? That seems insane. I think in our transient society, we can't fully process the profound display of trust in God that's on display here by a typical human. A typical human because if you continue to read the story of Abraham, you'll realize that time and time again, he makes some really poor choices. He makes some poor choices that gets him in some really significant, touchy situations. Safety of his wife, safety of him are on the line, and and God intervenes. He was very much a human being. And yet, he goes because God tells him to. Responsive faith. Obedience. So the temptation here is when when you're reading the text and if you're willing to say, no, he's a typical human being, like we could do this too. We have the capacity as a human to, to have this type of faith. Then I think the logical question is, how did he know it was God? Like, how did he know that God was telling him to do this? I I can't tell you how many times I've been asked, like, how do you know, like, when there's a prompting from God, when God's telling you to do something? Because I I think a typical mistake in Christendom is that we use almost spiritual jargon. We, We say things like, oh, well, the Lord told me, or the Lord was leading me. And people listening are like, what? He just sits down and chats with God? are you doing all right, buddy? Did he tell you to drink juice when the next meteorite came by? Like, this seems creepy. We're talking about a prompting within ourselves, being compelled to do something that seems counterintuitive. So the way that maybe he knew that it was God and the way that I think we can know when God is laying something on our hearts today, in today's world, in today's society, is if obeying would only result in God getting the glory. If obedience to something you feel compelled to do will result only in God getting the glory, maybe it's a God idea. We overthink things so much. So let me simply break it down for you. If it's counterintuitive, and what I mean by counterintuitive is that literally the world says, and there's nothing wrong with this, but the world says, move up in your organization. There's nothing wrong with that, right? But if we're feeling like, hey, the world tells us to move up in the organization and yet we feel compelled to make a lateral move or a backwards move and we can't explain why, it seems counterintuitive. And if we do that, the only thing that will result is God getting the glory, not us getting the glory, then maybe, just maybe, it's a God idea. I'm not saying that all God ideas end in you making a backwards move in your organization. And if you're moving forward, it doesn't mean that you're in the midst of sin. (laughs) I'm not saying anything like that. I'm simply saying if you're trying to decipher a God idea, it probably looks more like God getting the glory 
rather than you getting the glory. Here's a, another low-hanging fruit, easy one, that actually surprises me how it's profound for some people. If it's sin, it's probably not a God idea. <laughs> I don't know. I think God's telling me to leave my wife. <laughs> that might not be God. So if it's sin, or if it results in, get this, you getting the glory, maybe it's not a God idea. Maybe it's just your idea. If you have a sense or a compulsion to do something that results in you getting the glory, that results in you getting what you want, it's possible that it's just your idea. And there's exceptions. There's definitely exceptions where, where there's something that you feel like God has promised you, that it's something that, that you want and that you're moving towards and God is blessing that. And so I'm not saying that to get what you want is somehow sinful. I'm not saying that. I'm talking about giving you some form of a grid to make decisions on whether or not God is speaking to you. If God is getting the glory, if it seems counterintuitive, then maybe it's a God idea. If it results in you getting the glory, if it's sin, then maybe it's your idea. We display, when we display responsive faith, we walk by faith, not by sight. We walk into situations and circumstances that seem counterintuitive. They seem to not make sense. We're farsighted, not nearsighted. The nearsighted says, this is what we're dealing with. Why are you deciding that? Listen, we walk in obedience, not because of rewards. Anybody can respond because something's in it for them. But what if there's nothing in it for you? You're still going to walk in obedience. You're going to walk in obedience when it gets hard, when it gets messy. Like I said, it goes against the grain of our humanity. How do we do this? How do we do it, especially when things are getting difficult, especially when things get hard, especially when it's getting messy? How do we continue to remain faithful to what it is that we know we're supposed to do, to remain obedient? Verse 10 says, For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. He didn't look at what was in front of him. He was looking beyond that. He had a vision of something greater. People were living in cities around him. If you can imagine, he's packed up everything he's owned. He's moving away from safety, from everything that's known for generations and generations. He's lived in the same place and he's leaving that place and he's living in tents. Living in tents. Looking at people living in cities. He's gotta be saying, are we sure God called me to do this? Am I sure about this? Every time it got dangerous, every time it got difficulty, uh, difficult, am I sure that I heard God? You see, in difficult times, he looked at the promise in the future. He had farsightedness. He kept his focus forward, his focus on the promise, not focused on the now. When we focus on the now, it's hard to, to keep perspective that's greater than the moment. You see, to be farsighted is to be obedient and faithful in the present because of confidence of what God will do in the future. 
can be faithful here, not because I understand it, not because I'm okay with it, not because I even like it, but because I know God is doing something beyond what I can see. So we're living in tents right now, <laughs> but I promise God called me to leave the comfort of the known, the comfort of the proven, of the tried. And so I'm not living for material comfort or material possessions. I'm taking a step of faith. Why? Because God told me to. That's why. It makes no sense to anybody, but God's doing something in the future, forward-looking. Now, if you're not careful, you, you hear what I'm saying and you think, well, that's kind of reward-based, right? Like, you're obeying because of the future reward, because of the promise. Well, until you read on. You see, verse 13 says something that really kind of sets the whole story sort of straight. It's kind of sobering. Verse 13 says, these all died in faith, <laughs> not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. What? What? Like, what are you talking about? That doesn't make a good Hollywood movie. Like, listen, honey, we're going to a place that we don't know yet. God has called us to it. We live in tents, they live in cities, but God's promise is that we're, we're going to have descendants that are more than the number of the stars in the sky. How many kids do we have, hon? None. Okay, how's this going to play out? Shut up, honey. <laughs> Just live in the tent. You're welcome. Okay, you know I'm 90, right? Shh the Lord will bless us with a child. She's like, I'm not sure I want this game. Abraham, they have a child. But is that the fulfillment of a promise? Because here's the deal. He's as human as I am. Then he's picturing like, go to a city that I'll show you. And man, your descendants, holy cow, I'm going to roll into a city and they're going to be like, hark, you are the one that has come. Please take all of our belongings. This is now your city and we are your children. And be like, boom, thank you, God. Because that's the way the story plays out in our minds. Because we always have an idea of what the fruition of the promise will look like. Oh, we never grow out of that. If you have kids, if you've ever babysat, if you're in proximity to a kid, the minute you tell them anything, they have a definition of what that looks like. They've defined it for you. Hey, maybe we're going to, all you have to do is say maybe. Sucker's choice. You say maybe, it's happened. That you said. Why would you lie to me? I said maybe. <laughs> but you said it. I don't, like, wow. Wow, I will never speak again. Now the answer is no. So everything is a win. You're allowed to, even though I said no. You're welcome. You may sleep in your bed. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> But it's, it, it's not, I'm not picking on kids because we were all kids in this room. And here's the deal, we don't grow out of it. We never do. We have an idea when our teacher is telling us what it's going to look like, when our coach is giving us instruction. Like we, we kind of fantasize about what that new thing looks like, what I, my play is going to be. Oh my gosh, this is going to be amazing. My part will be incredible. The part that I'm going to play in the narr narrative that you are telling is powerful. And so I will be the best absolute worker you've ever wanted until it doesn't turn out the way I envisioned. 
And the story continues, and, and that's exactly what's happening right here. You think it's reward-based until you find out that they all died in faith. Never saw it. Abraham never saw the promised land. He didn't see the fruition of the promises that God whispered into his heart. That seems like a ripoff. It seems almost abusive. But then the author kind of fixes our perception. The author of Hebrews goes on in verse 16 and says, But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. The author is saying, Dummies. It's not about the fulfillment of the promises here. It's about what you're living for beyond. Not future five years from now, 10, 20, 30. No, eternity. What is it that you're living for? What is the future? What is it that you're laying your life down? You see, verse 16 is saying Abraham's priority was obedience to God, not the reward promised. God is quite simply worthy of our obedience. The end. And you know what that's like. I mean, as much as we don't like it, you know what it's like if you're a parent or if you've ever been in authority over another human being. If you're a teacher, a coach, babysat, doesn't matter. When you look at someone and say, but do this, and you have the best intentions, and they're like, why? Because I said it. And because I'm for you, not against you. Why, why are you wasting time asking? Just do it. Eh, not so much. God's worthy of our obedience. He's just worthy of our obedience. Because he's for us, not against us. Because he understands things that we don't understand. Because there's a narrative that began at the beginning of time that we were not present for. And now we're here with eternity ahead. And he's the author and creator of life. And he's saying, do this. They're like, eh. I love the story of Job. I mean, it's a horrifying story if you've ever read it, but what I love about it is the way God just speaks to Job and says, hey, were you there when I hung the stars in the sky? Talk about end of conversation, right? Like, <laughs> excuse me, were you here when I actually placed the stars in the sky? Were you here when I caused life to enter the earth? Were, were you actually present when I created the earth that you marvel at? And then I want that, I want it to end with, so shut your pie hole. Like, that's the way I want, because that's, that's the type of God I would be. <laughs> it's a good thing I'm not. Because I'd be like, what are you talking about? You're going to argue with me about this tiny little situation right now and the difficulty of your life? But here's the deal. God loves us. He loves us in the most painful, deepest, darkest moments of our life, and he's present and patient even though he hung the stars in the sky, even though he created the earth around us. And so he's patient and he's kind. Verse 17 says, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son. Now, I don't want to assume you know the story of Abraham. Abraham, like I mentioned, saying, hey, we're going to have offspring, and his wife gets pregnant, and 
and they give birth to Isaac. And in an unbelievable story, God tells him to sacrifice Isaac. And he goes up to this mountaintop to worship the Lord. And on the trip, Isaac actually asks his father, where is the animal for sacrifice? And he says, God will provide. All the while knowing that God has asked him to to sacrifice the promise. Like, you can't have descendants that cover the earth if you don't have one. (laughs) Here it is. His only son. It seems so counterintuitive. It seems like, does God even know what he's doing? He made a promise and now he's going against it. And in the moment that Abraham is about to take his son's life, God tells him to stop. He provides a ram in a thicket. And he's marked forever with the reality that he's going to obey God no matter what he asks because God is bigger than him. So we see God's faithfulness in the midst of some of the the darkest moments of these people's lives. But doesn't it resonate to think in the midst of our lives, in the midst of of the journey that we're living, it, it literally seems like sometimes God is going against what it seems like his word is saying. It's not playing out the way we thought. Do we remain obedient? Do we pitch a fit, cross our arms, say, this isn't the way it was supposed to play out? How dare you, God? I'm a way better God than you. Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, they're all encapsulated in the following verses right up to verse 22. And what does it mean for us to see these people of faith continue to move forward, not seeing the fruition God's promise. You see, how do we connect the dots this morning? As humans, we tend not to obey when things get difficult. But if we do obey, we might get rewarded. But keep your motive pure. Don't do things in order to be rewarded. But we might actually not see the promise come to fruition. In fact, we might die before we ever see it. What? Like, what do we do with that? It seems like it's an exhausting struggle that will inevitably leave us falling short. Like, we either obey and we're rewarded, but we have the wrong motive in being rewarded, or we might never see the promise, unless, unless there was one greater than Abraham, Isaac, and Joseph. Unless there was one that Abraham, Isaac, and Joseph were pointing to. A greater Abraham, a greater Isaac, a greater Jacob, and a greater Joseph, one that would always obey and remain faithful. Unless there was one that would remain obedient and faithful even to the point of death, point of death on a cross, and then in that moment would take the reward of eternal life and by his grace and mercy turn and impart it to everyone that will call upon his name and say, I have done the obedience for you and I will impart the reward to you. What if your reward was connected to the obedience of Jesus Christ? Well, that would give us confidence. It would give us assurance 
we would realize that the promise of our eternity doesn't stand in the balance of, of our sinful behavior in this moment, but that there is, there is an obedient God that has extended grace and mercy in the midst of our disobedience. It means that we would have strength and comfort and confidence and the ability to look at what is right in front of us and say this is for God to deal with because he's for us, not against us. It doesn't feel like he's for us right now. It's messy, it's hard, it's painful. There's tears that are shed in, in moments and places that we think no one sees, and yet God is present in the darkest moments of shattered dreams and unmet expectations and broken hearts and all the things that, that we look at and we try to piece together in our brokenness, and God is saying, I'm for you, not against you. I'm writing a narrative that's greater than you're right now. Would you be farsighted? Would you remain faithful and obedient right now, even though it's getting messy? It's why we can have a peace that passes all understanding in the midst of every situation, because situations and circumstances do not define us. We walk in the promises of God as his children, co-heirs to the throne, because of the, the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's what the word of God says. So how will you respond when things are difficult? Will you function with assurance and confidence in realizing that the end game is, is far more important than what we see right now? That it's only a small part, this right now is just a small part of a grander narrative that God is weaving in his grace and mercy for us. We say every week, the text requires something from us. The question I want to ask you as we leave this place this morning in just a couple moments is what promise do I need to write down this week? What promise do I need to write down this week? And the reason why is because when we keep the farsighted promise of God, it clarifies the perception of our now. It makes clear what it is that we're going through now. If you lose sight of the promises of God, then you're thrown back and forth by the pain of today, by the unknown of tomorrow. So we have journals that we talk about weekly, and you can feel free to get one if you haven't gotten one. They're in the back. And the reason why that's important is because what we've provided you with is a, a bookmark this week. Eric made mention of it earlier. On the bookmark, it actually has the question written out, what promise do I need to write down this week? I want to encourage you to, to keep that in the journal if you'd like, but it's a, a space for you to actually write something down in order to keep the promise in front of you. And here's the deal. I'm, I'm a very private person, and so you can feel free to write something down that only makes sense to you, like, you know, tree, like we know. So I'm not expecting you to bury your heart on this, this bookmark, but if you want to, you certainly can. We'll provide time in the midst of our response this morning for you to, to write that down if you want. You don't have to go into song right away, but for some of you this morning, the thing you have to write down is that you're a child of God because you've lived life for yourself up until this moment, and today is the day that you feel compelled to cross the line of salvation. 
If that's you this morning, if you've been living for yourself, there's no secret words that need to be repeated or anything like that. It's as simple as saying, I'm a sinner, but God, you died for my sins. Would you forgive me? Come and be the Lord and leader of my life. I'm done being the leader of my own life. Will you be the leader of my life? That's it. That's how you cross the line of faith this morning. And that quickly you become a child of the living God because you call upon the name of the Lord. You admit your brokenness and acknowledge the sacrifice that he made. Now this morning, you might be tempted to write down something in a a promise and I just want to challenge you for a moment that, that you not write down a principle but instead write down a promise. And there's a difference. This happens a lot in Christendom as a whole. People read the Proverbs as if they're promises. And you hear them say a, a proverb and be like, All right, so I'm holding on to that one. Like, yeah, it's not a promise. Proverbs are not promises. They're principles. Right? Train up a child in the way that they should go, and when they're old, they won't depart from it. I've heard people say, that's a promise I'm holding on to. Like, well, your knuckles are going to get really white, and you're going to be very tired. Because it's not a promise. That's a principle. You you train up a child in the way that they should go and and you continue to sow faith into their life. But here's the deal. They have will. They have free will. They're going to make a decision. You can't strong arm them into faith. In fact, in an attempt to strong arm them into faith, you may push them away. So it's a principle. It's a timeless principle that should be lived by. You should do that, but it's not a promise. And so what are the promises of God? I have some listed to to help you have a little bit of a handle, and maybe there's a personal promise that God has whispered to you, and if it's a personal promise, then you can write that down or make note of it. But as far as biblical promises that God has for us, James 1, 5, he promises to give us wisdom if we ask. Maybe you need wisdom. Maybe you're in the crossroads. Maybe you're in the midst of, of parenting chaos or something. You're like, I just need wisdom. So maybe that's the promise you need to write down. God, you're gonna give me wisdom. 1 Corinthians 10.13, he promises to provide a way out of temptation. Some of us are in the midst of the sin of our life and it seems like we're in a cycle we simply cannot break. We continue in that cycle and yet 1 Corinthians 10.13 says, listen, I promise a way out of temptation. If you take it, well, that's your choice. God promises it. Maybe you need to remind yourself, God's promising a way out of temptation. I need to take it. Hebrews 13.5, he promises to never leave us or forsake us. Maybe that's the thing you need to write down, like, God's not leaving me. He hasn't forsaken me. It feels like I'm, I'm praying to the ceiling sometimes, but that's a lie. The promise is God will never leave me, and he's not going to forsake me. He's for me. He's not against me. Maybe that's the, the promise you have to write down this morning. Philippians 1.6 says he promises to finish the good work he has begun in us. Maybe someday you just feel like you're just a gerbil on a wheel. But God's doing a work. He promises that. That if you remain faithful, if you lean in, he's doing a work in us. Luke 12.40 says he promises to come back. He's going to return for us. It's the farsightedness of the fact that this world is not our home. It's, what, it's the same faith that Abraham held on to, that Isaac, that Joseph, they all held on to. It's like, listen, we're not living for the here. 
If we're living for the here, then the Apostle Paul says it best in 1 Corinthians. You know what? If this is it, then just live for it. Why are you even at church today? Don't waste your time. Just live for all the pleasures of the earth. And when you die, you'll come to grips with the emptiness of your own soul. Because it's greater than the now. And it's bigger than the here. Farsighted. So again, I don't know what promises you need to write down. There are some general ones. Maybe there's something specific. God has whispered to the quietness of your mind, your heart. If you would, just bow your heads and and close your eyes for a moment as the team makes their way up. The reason why I want you to do that is just so you're not distracted by them coming up. I want to challenge you with your head bowed. You don't have to close your eyes if you don't want, but at least with your head down that you just consider what is is the promise that God has, has whispered to my heart that I don't even want to give utterance to because it seems so absurd. That if God comes through, he's the only one that gets the glory. There's been seasons of my life where I've held on to promises that were almost too painful to pen. I just didn't want to write them down because I'd prayed too much about it. I'd hoped too much about it. I didn't want to write it down because honestly, it's just too painful. So I don't know where you are this morning, and I don't pretend to know, but I know that there's a God that loves you. Here's the cry of your heart, whispers. It's writing a story. It's for you, not against you. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning. Pray that your voice would be louder than the lies. The lies that we speak to ourselves. The lies that the world speaks to us. The lies that well-meaning people even speak into us. Father, that we would hear your promises this morning. And that we would lean in, not for reward's sake, but because... We want to be faithful because you're worthy of obedience. You're worthy of praise. So we declare ourselves available this morning. We respond in worship to you.